Those of us who are in the boomer generation or even before have witnessed an amazing downward spiral in American culture in our lifetime. We've seen the rise in the dominance of rock and roll music with all its variants. We have witnessed the degeneration of moral values in our public education system. We've spawned the sexual revolution that has led to a casual and carnal view of intimacy, the LBGTQ plus movement, gender dysphoria, and the sexualizing of children. We have adopted a practice of abortion as a means of birth control and a way to get rid of unwanted children because of illicit sexual relationships. We have fostered a progressive movement that wants to erase history, elevate victimhood to sainthood, defund police departments, tear down the very structure of our society. And we are expected not only to compromise with and tolerate these ideologies, but to wholeheartedly embrace them. Toleration has become a one-way street. You must tolerate me and my beliefs, but I don't have to tolerate you and your beliefs. Christians have always been expected to stand out and away from society and its perverse culture. No matter what time in history they have lived, there's always been wickedness and evil in society. The temptation has always been to compromise with culture, to dabble with it, to somehow venture as far into it as you can, but still maintain a semblance of biblical doctrine. The church is supposed to impact society for good, but all too often society infiltrates the church for evil. And this was the case in the ancient church at Pergamos. The Lord Jesus, the Alpha and Omega of Revelation, had a message for this church that's still pertinent today. You cannot have a mixture of faithfulness and unfaithfulness without damaging the testimony of the church. You cannot tolerate the sinful practices of the world within the church and expect that to please the Lord. You cannot compromise with worldly culture and expect your church to impact that culture for Christ. The Lord Jesus gave his life for the church, the body of believers, and in doing so, he separated it from the world. He gave it the power to overcome the world, not to succumb to its allurements. And if we're to enjoy the fullness of fellowship, stand for what is holy and righteous, and avoid his chastisement, we must not compromise with the dictates of our culture. So as we look to this church today uh, and uh, the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ and his commands here, let's ask his blessing on his word. Our Heavenly Father, we're again thankful today that Jesus is the means by which we uh, are not engulfed by our culture, 
but we can stand separate from it and impact it for God and the gospel. Lord, we realize that uh, there are churches today that are mixed with the faithful and with those who are very worldly. And we pray, Lord, that our church would not be like that. We pray, Lord, that we would all be faithful to you. We would all be concerned with a holy life that pleases you. And Lord, that we would be separate from the culture in which we live as we try to pull people out of it into your church. Bless us, Lord, as we come before your table today with these thoughts we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pergamus is the church of cultural compromise. So let's take a look, first of all, at the culture that existed in this church so many, many years ago. We know that uh, this city was politically powerful. It was uh, strategically located on a high hill which towered over a thousand feet above the Caicos River Valley. And from this height, it could observe an approaching army miles away. So in that sense, it was militarily protected. It was also the capital of this region in ancient Asia. Asia. It was well protected and esteemed by Rome for its advancement of the imperial cultus or the worship of the emperor. Culturally, it was sophisticated. Its citizens were educated. It boasted a library of 200,000 volumes, very impressive in that day, second only to Alexandria in Egypt. It became a leading center for the production of parchment uh, because it was in competition with Alexandria where you obtained papyrus for writing, so they invented their own material made from animal skins. It also hosted a large hospital complex dedicated to Asclepius, which was their god of healing. And people came from all over the world to receive medical treatment, which was really involved in the cult as well. And we found that the birthplace of Galen, a historical uh, physician uh, who was second only to Hippocrates, who was the most famous physician of ancient times. Religiously, it was pagan, like all the other cities of that day. They had built temples to four pagan gods and three Roman emperors. It became the chief center of emperor worship, which put Christians in great danger more than any of the other cities where a church was existing. You remember that once a year, citizens were required to invoke Caesar uh, and uh, uh, to offer up a sacrifice to him and claim him as Lord one day a year. But in this place, that loyalty could be demanded on any day. And a temple was built to Augustus Caesar, to Trajan, and to Severus. So it was a really difficult place for a Christian to live in that respect. And in a real sense, the citizens of Pergamus bowed to the state as Lord. 
Now, in this place, the Lord situated his church to be a testimony to his name. And it's noted for its faithfulness to Christ, but also its toleration of those in its midst who would not separate from the pagan culture. So that was a big issue. Now, as we look at verse 12, we see the communication of Christ to his church. And you remember that within each message to the churches, the risen Lord identifies himself with some description as the Alpha and Omega in chapter 1. And to Pergamus, this identification is with a sharp two-edged sword. Now, the sword uh, denotes authority, the right to rule and to exact judgment. And it's interesting that the only authority in Pergamus that could wield the sword for capital punishment was Rome itself, the government. But Christ is the one who now stands in greater authority than all human government, and he stands in that authority over the church. Now that indicates to us that he's ready to judge the church if necessary. He even warns later that he may have to come to them and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. The Lord, we know, is merciful, he's gracious, he is loving, but he is also just and righteous, and sometimes he has to deal with his people in a a severe way to get them where they need to be. Now, in verse 13, we have the commendation of Christ. In most of these churches, there is some kind of of good thing that's going on there for which he commends them. And verse 13 tells us, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So in Smyrna, we noted there was a synagogue to Satan. But in Pergamus, Satan sits enthroned. And there are a number of suggestions uh, by different authors as to what this means. Where, where was Satan's seat? Where was it located? What does this allude to? Well, many believe it alludes to the pagan worship, and uh, especially that of Asclepius, who was identified with a serpent on a rod, and uh, that related to the supposed healing powers of this God. And a similar symbol is still found in the medical field today. You'll note that uh, perhaps on the coat of a doctor, you'll see that, that, that rod with a snake twisted around it. Uh, that is where this originated from. Now, along with this, there were many other false gods worshipped in that city, such as Zeus, who was recognized as a savior god, along with Asclepius, and other gods as well. And we know that behind all of these false religions back then and today as well, that Satan, uh, of course, is behind that. He backs it. But all the cities had this kind of false worship, this pagan worship. So what would make this particular city uh, more the seed of Satan than those other ones? Well, many agree that it's more likely that this seat of Satan in the city of Pergamos uh, is alluding to the main center of emperor worship. 
in the region. Now, the current Caesar, when John wrote this epistle, was Domitian. And Domitian demanded to be addressed as Dominus at Deus, Lord and God. Now, not all the emperors went that far with it, but this fellow did. And the citizens of this city would be perfectly fine with doing that. But it became a test of faithfulness to Christ and his followers that were there because the temptation would be to lay low, maybe every once in a while, uh, say, you know, hail Caesar or Caesar's Lord, just to make your life easier. But of course, the Lord Jesus does not expect us to do that. And Satan often uses human government to persecute his church. But Christ expects his people to be faithful, even in the direst of circumstances. And when Satan is controlling your government, uh, you can always expect bad things to happen. Now, let's go on here. The Lord Jesus, as the Alpha and the Omega, commends this church in that situation, in that place where Satan is dwelling, where he's actually enthroned. He commends them for their faithfulness. He knows that this is where uh, they dwell. He's put them there. He's placed them in that situation. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my uh, faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So they're holding fast to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were faithful to him in that satanic environment. Most of them were not caving in to compromise with the culture around them. They did not deny the faith, even in a time of severe persecution. And there was at least one person in their midst who was killed for his testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know nothing of this man Antipas other than what is written here. And that means that he's in Christ's hall of martyrs. And since Rome alone could wield the sword of capital punishment, we probably could assume that his refusal to bow to Caesar may have been involved in his eventual death. According to, excuse me, according to tradition, Antipas is said to have been a dentist and a physician, but the worshipers of Asclepius suspected he was propagating Christianity secretly, and they accused him of disloyalty to Caesar. So he was condemned to death, and the means of death was being shut up in a brazen bull, and then that bull was heated uh, until it was red hot. So he pretty much roasted to death, if that is the case. Now historically, it has not been unusual for Christians to be viewed as enemies of the state because their beliefs go against uh, a lot of what is going on in in high places in government. And that's becoming more and more true of our own country, where what we believe is totally against what the government promotes and tolerates. And are we going to remain faithful to the Lord, 
Or are we going to be willing to make compromises so that uh, we are left alone? The day may be coming when that happens. As a matter of fact, it's already happening. We know a number of cases where Christians have been brought, brought to the law courts. They've been sued because they don't agree with what is being promoted in our society, in our culture. Now, although these people were faithful to the Lord for the large part, they were hanging on to him, they were clinging to him, they were holding fast in faith, the Lord Jesus still has a complaint about them in verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And he also mentions the Nicolaitans. So the church is not, in general, denying Christ himself, but what was it doing? It was tolerating those who were compromising with the culture of Pergamos. One author wrote, there was both consistency and compromise, faithfulness and tolerance. So this had to do with what he calls here the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So what did this all involve? Well, first of all, they're tolerating those who hold to a doctrine of Balaam. Instead of holding fast to Christ, they're holding fast to a faulty doctrine of compromise. Now, you remember the story in Numbers about Balak, the king of Moab, who called Balaam, who was supposed to be a prophet, he wanted him to curse Israel. Well, the Lord didn't allow Balaam to do that. The Lord put his word in Balaam's mouth, and instead of cursing Israel, he caused Balaam to bless them. But as we go on in, this, in the uh, book of Numbers, <clears throat> to chapter 31, Moses later chided the children of Israel for following the counsel of Balaam in relationship to marrying foreign women. And Balaam had evidently showed Balak how to be a stumbling block to Israel by enticing them through their women to worship the false gods of Baal. And you had the incident of Baal Peor, where 23,000 were killed because of, of, of following this advice. And interestingly enough, Balaam fell by the sword. Now, this was being repeated in Pergamos. They were guilty of the same kind of issues. And uh, you remember in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council met together to advise the Gentiles of certain things that they were not supposed to partake in, including meat offered to idols and sexual immorality, the exact thing spoken of here and indicated back all the way in the book of Numbers. So uh, they were um, doing what was clearly not supposed to be done by the word of God. Now, in the city of Pergamos, it would have been nearly impossible to get meat that was not sacrificed to idols in that city. 
They would take a portion of it. They would go to their God, offer to him. If anything was left over, they might have a feast and invite everybody to come. And your particular guild might be invited to come. If you didn't come, you could be ostracized. Pressure was put on you that way. Um, uh, sometimes a portion of it would not be burned to the, the uh, false god, but would be taken to the marketplace and you would have to buy it there, knowing that it had been dedicated to a false god. So unless you raise your own animal, you might uh, end up being vegan, I guess. If you're going to stand for the Lord anyways at that time. And then, of course, in those forms of worship, we've heard over and over again, there was actually sexual immorality involved in the worship of these false deities. So if I want to uh, be successful in my business, if I want to have a job, if I want to take care of my family, well... I might have to dabble in some of these things uh, for the greater good, for the greater cause. And evidently, there were some in the church who were holding to these things, thinking that they were all right and being involved in them in some way. And God says, no, we can't do that. Well, the doctrine of Balaam, that the Nicolaitans would view this as acceptable behavior, an acceptable compromise in the culture of that day. Now, currently, there are numerous ways that we can compromise in our own culture rather than being uh, completely faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things going out there in the world that we bring into the church. One of the biggest things I think of today is the style of music, the genre of music. But uh, again, we don't worship idols like they did historically, at least not here. But there certainly are many false isms in our culture today that we have to separate from. And one of the greatest issues today is really the worship of sex itself. This is the new goddess of love. This is the new Artemis or Diana to whom most people bow. Sexual intimacy is no longer attached to the the joy of marriage, but the fulfillment of powerful urges uh, for your own pleasure. And so now all kinds of sexual perversion are acceptable in our society and pushed upon our youth. The church cannot tolerate worldly culture in its midst. Now, we might be outmoded, we might be overly virtuous and modest in the eyes of people in the world, but that's the way the Lord wants us to be. And we have to refuse the idolatrous meat the world offers to us in so many ways, compromising with its immorality, its forms of music, its entertainment, its politics, its corruption, its materialism, and the list can go on and on. We have to maintain our holiness. Now, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans must have been similar, though not exactly the same, as the doctrine of Balaam. We spoke about this earlier in our study of the church at Ephesus. And it was likely an antinomian, anti-law attitude that if you're in Christ, it doesn't really matter how you live because the spirit's on a higher plane than the flesh or the body. 
But the word of God does not separate men in that way. We're to worship God in spirit and in body. And we're to live for him, uh, the whole man, not just a part of man. And note that Jesus says here that he hates this kind of doctrine. It's also worthy of notice here when we think about the names of these two groups. The name Balaam comes from two words that mean to swallow the people. And the name the Nicolaitans is derived from conquer the people. So these groups are trying to swallow up the people to conquer them. And all false religions seek to engulf or control its constituents. And Satan uses all means possible to keep the lost under his power and to lead the saved into compromise with the culture of the day. Now for this, the Lord Jesus offers his correction. In verse 16, he says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. All right, so... um, The Alpha, the Omega, warns the church that unless they turn away from this compromise and this toleration, he's going to come in judgment. And the the church was failing to keep the congregation pure. And although most of the people were holding fast to their profession of Christ, they were tolerating those who were hobnobbing with the world. These these people were believing a false doctrine. That doctrine was influencing their lives and it was bringing reproach on the church. So instead of compromise and toleration, what were they supposed to do? Well, let's find out by way of example and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, when Paul wrote this about a decade earlier, this is what he uh, was dealing with. Apparently, there was a man in the church who he says uh, was involved in sexual immorality with his father's wife, which was probably his stepmother. That's in verse 1. And he says, this is something not even named among the Gentiles. It's so bad. So what are they supposed to do in that situation? Because they were tolerating it. They were putting up with it. They were letting it stand. And Paul is telling them what they need to do in that situation. And this is what he says in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Put him out of the church. If he's not going to repent, you need to put him out. It will infect others in the church. It will affect its purity. And then down to verse 9, he gives his reasoning and he involves some other sins of the same nature. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. 
Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, extortioners, idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, uh, we don't separate from lost people. We're trying to get them saved, and we realize they're, they're uh, living in different types of situations where they're, they're controlled by certain sins. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who professes to be a Christian, who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, a drunkard, an extorter, not even to eat with such a person. So God demands separation, and when you're caught up in a lifestyle sin that is uh, in our culture, and you're not willing to repent of it, then the church has a responsibility of putting you outside of it. And let God deal with you. When you finally repent, then you can come back in. So this is what they were failing to do in the city of Pergamos. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm ready to judge you for it if you don't get going on it. So they needed to deal with these compromisers in their culture uh, in, in this same way. And if they won't repent, if they won't do this, he's going to come to you, the church, and then he's going to fight with them in the church with the sword of his mouth. So it's kind of a a double-edged judgment there that he's warning them about. Now the church itself needed to repent for their lax attitude toward the um, compromising party. That's not easy to do. It takes boldness. It takes grace. But it's necessary. And it's easy today to get into the church and hard to get out of it. And perhaps we ought to reverse that attitude, make it hard to get in the church and easy to get out of it if you're not living the way that you should. Now, the idea of coming quickly here alludes to imminence rather than swiftness. In other words, the Lord stands ready to come at any time to deal with with this compromising attitude of tolerating those who are not living a holy life in the church. And it's really a warning we should heed in every generation. The sword of the Lord cuts in two ways. It separates us from sin and death and uh, Uh, As we trust Christ as our Savior, we're taken out of one world and put into another, so to speak. It separates us unto God and makes us holy. But it also cuts in judgment, convicting of sin and bringing necessary affliction upon us to get us where we ought to be in our walk with God. So the Lord uh, warns the church here that they need to uh, deal with this problem. But it ends on a good note, as most of these do, a consolation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. First of all, he reminds us again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, always, when we come to the word of God, we're never nonchalant about it. We always take it seriously. We always uh, listen to what God has to say, and we have the attitude we're going to do, we're going to obey what he tells us to do. And then he makes two statements 
about what he will give to those who overcome, those who continue to do the right thing. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Okay, so this is the first thing here. He's going to give them hidden manna, something uh, uh, historically we know was given to eat. And that stands in contrast to the things sacrificed to idols. For those who will not compromise with the paltry things of this world that it offers to us, Christ will give us the heavenly manna. Now you remember that this was God's gracious supply to Israel during their wilderness wanderings. The Lord took care of their physical needs. He sustained them by that heavenly manna. But you know what? Jesus brings this into the spiritual realm in his teaching in chapter 6 of John's gospel. So let's go there and just read some things he said, teaching on uh, the fact that he fed the 5,000 and what you glean from that spiritually. In John chapter 6, verse 31, uh, the people wanted him to perform a, a sign. In verse 31, Jesus, uh, uh, they, they state, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They ask, they say, well, give us this bread. Jesus responded, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is the bread of life, and he gives us that bread as we respond to him in faith. And of course, in order to do that, he gave his life on the cross of Calvary. And then we also have down to verse 48. He repeats, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. So it was just physical sustenance. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. All right? So the Lord Jesus gives to the overcomer the bread of life that begins when we place our faith in Christ and really it never ends. Then there's something else that he promises to give and this is a little bit more difficult for us to interpret. He says, I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, folks, when I read through this, <clears throat> there were no less than eight different interpretations. And uh, there were probably more than that. So how do you pick one and say, well, this is it? Well, rather than trying to explain all of them to you and even pick one, I, I can tell you honestly, I'm not absolutely sure what that means. 
It could well be that to the saints at Pergamos, it had some kind of a meaning that we're, you know, this lost to us. But what we can glean from that is that those who are saved are going to at some point in the future receive this gift from God, this precious stone. The, the, the word white can also mean brilliant and shining. Some believe that might uh, indicate this is a diamond. But the important thing is that on that stone that all of us will receive is a new name written. Now that doesn't mean new in time. It means new in significance, uh, new in quality, new in application or character. And whatever that name is, it's not known to anybody except to the one who receives it. So is it a special name that will be given to you and you and you that will have significance to you personally? Uh, is it some new aspect of Christ that we never grasped, that we never understood when we were in this life? I'm not exactly sure what it is, but what that does is it makes us anticipate uh, the day when we'll find out because it's of a personal nature to each one of us, and it may be some kind of a personal message of encouragement that you'll carry with you throughout all of eternity. And really, that's pretty much all I can say about it, for sure. What will that name reveal to me or to you? Whatever it is, it will bring joy to us and a relationship to Christ forever and ever. So as we come before the table of the Lord this morning, let's be thoughtful of what he teaches us in this message to the church at Pergamos. First of all, we're reminded that we too have been placed where Satan's throne is being lifted up. Our culture is eroding quite rapidly. There's much that grieves us. Caesar seems to be growing more powerful and ready to swallow up the Christian faith if it does not compromise. But Christians are not to fear. Rather, we're to hold fast to Christ and even more so as the day of the Lord approaches. Secondly, we need to be diligent not to compromise with all the false teaching and false living around us and we have to take great care that our lifestyle does not tolerate the sinfulness that's out there in the world, that we don't compromise with it personally or corporately. We don't put up with it in the church, and we don't put up with it in our personal lives. And if the time would come where someone really needs to be dealt with in the church, the Bible tells us how to do that. We do that lovingly, and we do that carefully, and we do that biblically, and only if there's a refusal to repent do we have to put that one out of the church. But we don't see that a lot today. Then as we trust the Lord to help us overcome compromise with our culture, we have a lot to look forward to. He feeds us daily with the heavenly manna. Not just himself, but his word. And from that we derive wisdom 
and courage and strength to serve him no matter what's going on out there in the culture. And he also has many gifts in store for us that presently we really don't fully understand what they are, but we will cherish those for all of eternity. So by God's grace and power, let us not be known as a church of cultural compromise. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word today. We realize that we are living in an age where uh, many of your churches are compromising within the culture where we live. Lord, we know that this is not good, it's not right. And so we would pray you'd help us to stand up separated from all the evils going on in our society. And Lord, uh, by your power and grace to snatch others out of this as well through the gospel. Lord, help us not to compromise in our own lives, but when you point out uh, sin and wrong, that we're willing to repent of it and turn to you. Lord, bless us with these things this morning, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.